This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, August 7th, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, if you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21, that's where we'll be. One quick plug, uh, at the end of the month, uh, August 28th, we've talked about it, it's the church picnic, and I just encourage all of you to be there. I know it's a little bit of a drive, but I guarantee you, as much as I can, it will be a beautiful Sunday. We'll have a, a worship service in the park, we'll sing, uh, I'll get to preach that Sunday, then we'll um, feast on whatever foods that each of us bring, obviously, uh, and then we'll have some baptism and, and just kind of play. So we really would love as many, it's tempting in the summer to not come and gather at all. It's tempting when it's going to be far away, but it will be worth it. It's beautiful up there, and this is a celebration of 10 years of ministry with these three churches, so it's a little bit of a, a reunion, a family reunion, and remind ourselves that we're not the only church, but we have much history that goes back uh, many years. So uh, I pray and hope that you will be there. Genesis 21 is where we're at today. We're going to just go through about half the chapter. If you would follow along, uh, Genesis 21 verse 1 says this, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I'll make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring." So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And when she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water, gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And this is God's word. Just to backtrack a little bit, um, if you recall, at the end of Genesis 11, yes, 10 chapters ago, 
This is where the story kind of began. And at the end of Genesis 11, we read uh, basically a, a lineage, if you will, a genealogy of Abraham's family beginning with his father, Terah, and then laying out his brothers and so forth. And it's a pretty short list, but it's a list that's very full of tragedy and really hopelessness. In fact, uh, in verse 20 of chapter 11, in the middle of the lineage, or kind of as a kind of a statement qualifying the lineage, it says that now Sarah was barren and she had no children. And it leaves you with this sense of hopelessness. Abraham has no kids. He ends up taking care of his nephew, but he has no children of his own as Sarah is barren. And then after the death of his father, the Lord speaks to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, God makes him a promise. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make your name great. Holding on to this promise then, Abraham obeys God's command to to leave his homeland, to take his family and go to the land he had never seen, a land called Canaan. And when he gets there, he's a little fearful, but God again speaks to him immediately and declares, to your offspring, to your children, I'm going to give all this land that you see. So again, Abraham holds on to that. Well, by Genesis 15, it's been 10 years. When the Lord comes and speaks to Abraham again, Abraham kind of gives him an honest complaint. He says, look, it's been 10 years. I have no kids. And the guy that's going to inherit everything I have is not part of my family, though he lives in my household. The Lord however, affirms his promise. And he clarifies, look, it's not going to be just someone in your household. It is going to be your real son. In light of that, and knowing that she is barren, Sarah proposes an idea to kind of help God along. Well, it's technically his son if I give my servant to her, or to him, Hagar. And she does, as an alternative plan to waiting on the Lord. Well, within a year, Ishmael is born. That is the son of Hagar. And Abraham at this point is 86 years old. And Sarah is still barren. Thirteen years later, when Abraham is 99, the Lord appears to Abraham again and promises that Sarah is going to give birth. And at that point, Abraham laughs. He laughs at the thought of his 90-year-old wife giving birth, having a child. It's crazy. It's silly. And even though Abraham appeals at that point for Ishmael, let Ishmael be the promised kid. Let Ishmael be the chosen one. Let Ishmael be the one through the inheritance comes and God simply and literally says, no. That's not the way it's going to happen. A brief time later, the Lord again appears to Abraham with a couple of angels, and they are preparing him. They say, a year from now, Sarah's going to give birth. Sarah's eavesdropping on the conversation, and at that point, Sarah laughs at the same thought of a 90-plus-year-old woman giving birth. Well, from there, we see the events of the Jordan Valley's destruction and Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and all those things. And they move west to uh, the Philistine city 
more than likely at that point, Sarah is probably pregnant, whether they know it or not. Ishmael, at this point, is a teenager. The beginning of chapter 21 is actually the conclusion of the story that began in Genesis 11. The first words are in contrast to the last words of Genesis 11, right? Which were, now Sarah was barren and she had no children. And then promise, 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 promise. And then at the beginning of Genesis 21, the Lord visited Sarah as He had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. It's the unfolding of the rest of the story. After 24 years, it's a long time, no matter how you look at it. 24 years. We have difficult waiting 24 weeks, 24 days, maybe 24 minutes at times. After 24 years, God kept His promise. And He kept it in His way and in perfect timing. Even though, from both Sarah and Abraham's perspective, probably wasn't perfect. But at this point, that's all forgotten. The house is full of feasting and rejoicing, and Abraham sits knowing, wow, how foolish was I to think I knew better than God, that I would trust what I could see or what I could figure out or, or what I could imagine. God is so much greater than my intellect, so much greater than even my imagination. Everyone feels good. Things are great. Promised son is here. But it seems for reasons only known to God, some of our greatest tests of faith come when things are good. And it's difficult to imagine, especially in the midst of what we would consider the best of what it could be. Oh, this is the best of situations. It's hard to imagine that God may have something better in store for us. But the beginning of Genesis 21 teaches us what it means to let go of God's good and prepare for what God says is greater. Now, as Genesis 21 begins, Sarah could not be happier. You've got to try and imagine how this uh, woman who has spent um, most of her life and that's 90-ish years, barren. After 24 years of being told that that's going to change, so she was in her 70s, she is now, at this moment, a mother full of joy. Her shame has been removed. She has got to feel amazing. Holding her child, loving her child, the promised son, Isaac, whose name means God laughs. Sarah herself says, God has made laughter for me as she's holding Isaac. Literally. And she says, everyone who hears will laugh over me. The birth of Isaac has transformed her laughter of disbelief and Abraham's laughter of disbelief into a laughter of joy. And it's transformed everyone else's laughter. At one point, for most of her life, she was laughed at. And now she says, people will laugh over me, meaning they're going to rejoice at the reality of God blessing a 90-year-old woman who's been barren with a child. Amazing, crazy, I can't believe it kind of laughter. 
And again, you can only imagine the depth of love that Sarah had for Isaac. The appreciation and gratitude she had for the Lord. Now the text makes it clear that Abraham is being very careful to do everything that God has commanded him. It says it several times. Did this as God commanded. Did this as God commanded. He named Isaac as God commanded. He circumcised Isaac as God exactly commanded. And then it says Isaac grew up and he was weaned. Meaning that he had had survived the fragile kind of state of infancy that in ancient times the mortality rate was very high and it was uncertain whether the children would survive those younger years. But he's been weaned, meaning he is no longer being breastfed. He is now eating on his own, which is a sign that he's going to make it. He's going to survive. He's going to continue to grow. And according to Jewish rabbinical traditions, weaning could take place at 18 months or up to five years. And I imagine Sarah probably went toward the five years, right? I'm going to hold this baby as long as I can. This baby and me are going to bond for as many years as we can. And eventually, little Isaac wants a ribeye, so she has to release him, right? Because all babies have 16 There you go. But it was a natural thing, a uh, traditional thing to celebrate in this culture that, okay, this child has arrived, this child has been weaned, let's celebrate. And so Abraham prepares a great feast. And during this feast, Sarah's watching what is 14 to 16-year-old Ishmael laughing. Laughing at little Isaac. Now, Sarah is not merely concerned with a teenager making jokes because she should be concerned with every teenager at that point. It's not the mocking, though that is certainly displeasing. But she's beginning to think, as the Scriptures say, about the future. As she sees this young man looking at the promised son, laughing and mocking, she's imagining the inheritance. And she's concerned that Think about her son, whose name means God laugh, is going to have to share or even be usurped by this boy who is laughing. So she tells Abraham, and you can imagine an angry mom, mother bear, coming to Abraham saying, drive this slave woman and this son, her son, not yours, Abraham, out. Kick them out. Cast them out. Get rid of them. They're a problem. The Bible says that this thing was very displeasing to Abraham. And even though I'm sure he was probably upset with Ishmael's behavior, that's not what displeases him most. What displeases him is the prospect of sending his son, his 16-year-old son, that he has bonded with for 16 years, that he has loved, that he has cared for, that he has probably centered his life around those 16 years playing with him and, and enjoying him and then working with him probably, sending his son out. And it's very likely that he had still affections for Hagar. Hagar had not put herself in that situation. She was legally his second wife. He loved them both. 
And when his wife comes and says, get rid of him, it's not like he's like, sounds good. He didn't want to. That hurts him. And I imagine he's conflicted because at that moment, or at least right before that moment, he's thinking, man, things were going so good. Things were going so well, right? Promises have been fulfilled. Commands are being obeyed, which is even harder, right? When things go bad and I'm being obedient, I'm doing things right, Lord. I named him Isaac. I circumcised him. I'm raising him in the ways. Why are things going bad? Everyone's seeming to get along. Can't we just get along? But it's interesting the fact that Sarah won't even use Hagar and Ishmael's name. After 16 years of being somewhat of a mother, maybe somewhat of a friend, if you will, to Hagar, she comes and says, that woman and her son. It's very clear that after 16 years, things have not been getting better. And that perhaps Abraham has been overlooking a lot. And the question really comes is, is when, when things get difficult, especially in relationships, when things get hard, when are you supposed to endure and just kind of press in and, okay, we just got to push through this, and when do you need to make a change? When do you need to separate because it's just not going to work, and when do you need to make it work? It's likely that um, the heat of the conflict would have subsided. It's kind of like when um, you know, there's a, a bomb threat or some incident at, at an airport or a city, and then when all security heightens and, and there's more police and, and more cameras and all these things for about two weeks, and then everything subs down, you know, goes down and we kind of forget. It's likely that the heat is on right now, people are angry, you got this feast, get them out, this is ruining my birthday party, all these things, right? And then, if kind of just like, okay, let's just get through it. Ishmael, come on, just, just get out of here. Why don't you hang out with the shepherds for a while? Stay away from, from Sarah. I bet it would have subsided, at least temporarily. But in truth, it's clear there needs to be a long-term solution because it's only a matter of time before the conflict will spark again and something will ignite again and it will begin to hurt and impact even more people. Without doubt, there is a tension that's difficult for us. As I've been studying this, it's, it's, it's that tension between waiting in hope for change and then acting in hope for change. Like, those things are against each other. Sometimes we just wait and hope that things are going to change, and sometimes we're supposed to act and hope things will change, and I think both of them require faith. But, but which one do I do? And it's a decision that's made most difficult when you're talking about getting rid of something that really a good thing that God gave you. If it's something that clearly is just bad, this is clearly a problem, that's easy. But when it's a good thing, or seemingly a good thing that God gave you, it makes it much more difficult to know what to do. And we may be tempted, I think, to believe that, that God would never ask us 
to get rid of something good that He gave us. But the truth is, He'll do just that if it means giving us something greater. Now certainly, Abraham and Sarah are responsible for creating this mess, right? You look at them and you're like, well, you wouldn't even have this problem if you hadn't tried to, you know, work your way around God's promise and kind of, you know, help him out. You made this mess. It wasn't Hagar's fault. It wasn't Ishmael's fault. This is a problem you created. The truth is, though, even though they created this bad situation, even though they made these bad decisions, let's never forget this truth. God is the giver of life. And every child, regardless of how it's conceived or comes into this world, is a gift directly from the Lord. It's easy to look at Ishmael and go, oh, that's bad. Came out of a bad situation. It's not Ishmael's fault. It's not a good plan. It was not what God intended, yet God used it. And God did bless Hagar with getting pregnant. Even for all the laughing that Ishmael and his mother do. Because Hagar laughed originally when she got pregnant. That was why Sarah started treating her harshly because she felt she was looking down on her the first time she left. Now Ishmael is mocking. And we can play these games and go, well, gosh, Ishmael, we know that he kind of begins to be the founder, if you will, at least from the Muslim perspective of the Muslim faith. In fact, where he settles in Paran is, is right around Mecca. And you go, well, yeah, that's, they take this passage, in fact, and use it. We go, well, clearly we see how bad it became, although we read God is the one who made him a great nation. Well, that's a struggle. Another sermon there. But the Bible never says that Ishmael's a bad kid, and it never says that she is a bad wife, even though they do bad things. In other words, the separation isn't easy. It never is. No matter how obvious it seems it should be, or however difficult it might be to figure out. When we face a situation similar to Abraham, I think that our natural tendency is to choose what's easiest, what's most comfortable, and not what is most honorable or most biblical. We basically make decisions on our own. We choose the easier wrong most of the time over the harder right because we imagine something worse is going to happen. I don't want to make it worse. And I imagine Abraham is thinking that. More often than not, here's what we do. Let's be honest. We let our gut direct our difficult decisions. Emotions. We allow them to not just influence, which that's unavoidable, but we allow them to govern our decision making. It's all too easy to be led by your emotions when things get difficult, when things get emergent, when you've got a wife in front of you saying, we got to do something now! You're like, right? It's unlikely for us to stop and to think. And the problem in being governed by your emotions is that in the midst of a conflict, in the midst of a difficult decision, everyone feels something different. Abraham and Sarah feel very different about this conflict. In the eyes of Abraham, right, 
All things are good. Oh, this is just a little thing. We'll get over it. No big deal. For 16 years, he's thought that. For 16 years, he maybe has ignored a lot. In the eyes of Sarah, right, things have never been good. Even before Ishmael was born. At the very conception, there was a problem. And it hasn't changed in 16 years. If Sarah has her way, according to her feelings and what she's feeling in the moment, kick him out. That makes me feel great. Right, wrong, don't care, makes me feel good. Abraham, if he were to go according to his feelings, he won't cast him out. It's my son. It's my wife. And both would feel justified. Those are some of the hardest decisions you have to make, especially as a married couple. When you get to a place where you both feel justified in opposite things, that's hard in any relationships. The question is, when is it better to let go of something good? And Ishmael, it's good. It's a gift from the Lord. When is it better to let something go that even seems good and trust that God is something greater? Even though it hurts. Difficult decisions like this should never be hasty ones. And that's the quickest way to know you're being governed by your emotions. You want to make a quick decision. Most hasty decisions are governed by what we deem or feel good or imagine is greater. But here's how they should be governed. Any kind of decision like this, because of, of, of just the kind of deception of our flesh, any kind of separation like this must be informed and directed by God's Word. This is the only way to avoid making a man-centered mistake. And surprisingly, and maybe not so much, there is usually quite a difference between what we feel is good and what God says is good. Sometimes God's Word restrains us from what He says is bad. And other times, He charges us to do what we would never in ourselves consider good. Forgive? Love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you? That's, uh, I don't feel like doing that. Welcome to faith. Right? Trusting and, and surrendering and submitting yourself to God's Word so that you are not led by your emotions or led by what you know, but you are governed by, restrained by, knowing that your emotions can lead you astray, knowing that your imaginations and what you think, like Abraham and Sarah, can lead you apart from where God wants you to be. In many difficult situations, especially with people, there are times when God's Word will tell us, you need to endure. Just because things are hard doesn't mean you get to run. You need to press in. But I think we'd be surprised to see that there are other times when Jesus Himself will say, you're enduring too long. You're being too patient here. 
We struggle with this because there's a lot of fear of doing the wrong thing. I don't want to cause more harm or, or make things worse, but here's something that we can know. If you are endeavoring to follow instruction from God's Word, then you don't need to fear that worse will happen. Even if it gets worse, it's not worse. If you are obeying what God has called you to do, if you are following, it may get worse. Do you remember when Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go? He said, "Mm, I don't think so. Who told you? Uh, I am Yahweh. I don't know this Yahweh. And by the way, now I'm going to make the work for your people twice as hard. And he walks out. He's like, hey, is he going to let us go? No, things are going to get twice as bad. What would you tell him? What God told me to say. Our job is to, to obey and do what God has called us to and not imagine like, well, if I do this, that's going to be bad. Okay, I guess that's the path God wants you to go. And it's not bad, even if it feels like it. Left to himself, Abraham probably would not have listened to his wife. He would have been led by what he felt. I love this family. I can't do that, Sarah. I'm sorry. This is hard. I can't. But you see, God speaks into the situation. And he tells him, listen to your wife. The reason he has to tell him that is because Abraham wasn't going to. Listen to your wife. Kick him out, like she said. Now, in speaking to Abraham and even injecting himself in there, I think that's gracious of the Lord because he saves Abraham from having to make what felt like an impossible decision. I mean, there's so much peace. As you make difficult decisions, whether it be relational or or other, of doing it according to the Word of God. Because when people challenge you about what you did and why you did, you say, well, I'm just following what God has said. If it's by your emotion or your intellect or your gut, you've got a lot to answer for. And that's a lot harder answer to give. Well, I just kind of felt that maybe I... Uh, uh, as opposed to like, well, God's Word said this. And so we did what He said. That's a grace to Abraham. Where he can go, oh, okay, God. He listens to God. He doesn't really listen to his wife as much as he listens to God first and then listens to his wife. Now, that said, great little fact. Here's a free one, fellas. Listen to your wife. Nine times out of ten, they're usually right. But you can test it with Scripture, but I think they're usually right. That's my, been my experience with my bride. She's a lot wiser than me. There you go. That's free. But in essence, Abraham is told this by God. I think it's beautiful. He tells Abraham, it's okay to experience this loss. I know it hurts. I know it's not what you wanted. I know it it looks like you're getting this great thing and you're throwing it away that I gave you. It's okay to lose this. I have something better. It doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it. But I have something better. And in telling him that, it it hurts. 
Right? He's saying, I want you to do what's going to hurt. I want you to do what's going to be painful. But he also gives them hope in the midst of it. He says, don't be upset. Do as your wife says. It's through Isaac that redemption is going to come. But I'll take care of Ishmael. Don't fear. Don't worry. He'll be all right. He's going to be a great nation. I will take care of him. Let go of my good, Abraham, that I brought into your life. And trust in my greater for yourself and for those you're sending out. Now, God's greater is not really something that we can necessarily measure or, or understand in the present. The reality is Abraham will never see the fulfillment, at least his life on earth, of his promise. It's the beginning of the promise. It's the promised son and from which a great nation is going to come, but it will not be in fulfillment until we see Christ. And ironically, it's Jesus who said in the Gospel of John, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So he did see it, though he didn't see it in earth. But the greater, if you will, the like, okay, trust me, it's, it's going to be better. We may never actually see that better. We may never see and experience that greater. That's called faith. It's trusting. Abraham's asked to trust that God is going to fulfill his future promises based on what he has fulfilled in the past already. Isaac came, took 24 years. He may never see Ishmael become a great nation, but he has to trust that I, I got him. I'm going to take care of him. And so Abraham does. And he loads up Hagar with provisions and she is cast out of the family. And as difficult as it must have been, peace is found by Abraham not because he knows he is casting her into the hands of the wilderness, but because he knows he is casting her into the hands of God. It's hard to surrender control to God in a hard decision. It's hard. Because you imagine if you do it your way or do it a different way, you can control the outcome. It's hard to surrender control to God for a decision, but... The only reason it's hard is because most of us live under the delusion that we're ever in control. Once you surrender yourself and you realize that it is God who is always in control, even in the midst of conflict like this, it will become easier. Relational tensions like this, though undesired and unplanned and, and unwanted, they become God's tools to really bless us and to teach us and to change us all. And when God, and yes I say God, inserts difficulty, or if it makes you feel better, allows difficulty, ordains difficulty into something good, we can always expect, even if we don't see it, that He is planning something greater. I think it's important to consider the perspective of the one who was separated. Ishmael and Hagar. How did they feel? And without doubt, they feel hurt. Uh, they feel abandoned. They probably are scared that this or that's going to happen, and particularly that they're going to die. But like Abraham, it's interesting where they find their peace. 
They don't find their peace in bitter resentment. They don't find their peace in, in attacking every opportunity they get. They find their peace not in themselves or other people, but in hearing God and trusting what He says. Hagar and her teenage son head south, probably heading back home to Egypt where she was from. Eventually, he gets an Egyptian wife and they settle in what is around, I believe, the tip of Saudi Arabia. Her provisions eventually run out on the journey. Out of water and suffering, she expects that they're going to die and so she places her son a distance away and she moves away so that she can see, or so sorry, she doesn't have to see him die. Now we imagine like uh, uh, Ishmael being like this little baby, like, like he's a teenager, right? So it's not like this 13-year-old, stay here, son. My guess is that they probably camped that night and she snuck away. And he awoke and started crying out, Mom, where are you? And she was nearby, but she wept and she cried, believing that they were going to die. Then God speaks to her. It's the second time that God's spoken to her. The first time is when she ran away after being treated harshly. And at that time, an angel came and asked her, where have you come from, as if he didn't know. And he told her to go back. This time, an angel comes and says, what's troubling you? Which is really the same of asking, like, what are you scared of right now? What are you afraid of right now? The angel doesn't even give her a chance to answer, interestingly. He says, what are you afraid of? Don't fear. Everybody knows she's scared. Don't fear. God hears your boy. God knows your needs. And repeats the same promise that Abraham was told from God. Going to make him into a great nation. And then something curious happens. It says, God opened her eyes to see a well of water. It doesn't say, um, hey, go across that hill you know, 100 yards and there's water there. It doesn't say, and the Lord drilled a well in front of her and a fountain gushed out. Right? It doesn't say that. It says he opened her eyes to see a well. Fear is so powerful. Fear can blind us to God's provision that's right in front of us. Her eyes are open. She sees the well. They get water. They are saved. And eventually, he becomes a great nation. I'm convinced that it's only when we begin to listen to God, not our fears and our flesh, not, not what we imagine is going to happen, we start to listen to God, that we can actually see that losing a good thing, right? That's Hagar's. I just lost a home. I just lost provision. I just lost protection. I lost so many things. I lost family. I lost my husband. But I believe as you begin to listen to God, this is what Hagar does, we actually can see that losing a good thing that came from God is often the path to experience something great from Him. Now as we close, we are left to wonder, what? does this story have to do with Jesus? 
and the gospel? That's a good question. We should ask that at every time because Romans 1 teaches us that it was revealed in the old scriptures, the story of redemption, that Jesus is there. Now, the Apostle Paul references Abraham multiple times throughout the book of Romans and in Galatians, and if he wrote Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. And in his letter to the Galatians, though, he references this particular story. There's many stories that are told about Abraham, but this particular one stands out in Galatians chapter 4. And he's telling it to a church, a young church, a Galatian church that's been planted And they have accepted the gospel and become Christians, but there's a lot of Jews that are coming in who have also become Christians. They are often called Judaizers, and they're coming in trying to tell these Christians, oh, that's great that you believe in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to do the Sabbath, all these other things and works of the law. Makes Paul very angry. And he writes this in Galatians chapter 4, referencing this story. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one of the slave woman, Ishmael, and one by a free woman, Isaac. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according through promise. Flesh, Ishmael, promise, faith, Isaac. And he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. He says, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. Mount Sinai is the mountain where Moses went to get the law from God. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present or earthly Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. In slavery to the law, trying to obey and failing oh so well. But, he says, the Jerusalem above, spiritual Jerusalem, is free. And he says, she is our mother. Verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, speaking to believers. But just as that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, laughed at him, who was born according to the Spirit, so Ishmael laughing at Isaac, so also now that those who are following the law are laughing or mocking or making trouble for those who are following in faith. He says, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So Paul takes his story says it's an allegory. You need to interpret allegorically, which means the story, the characters have symbolic meaning. In this case, earthly and spiritual meaning. The Galatian Christians are being told that if you hold on to the law, that you will be saved. That's what the Judaizers are coming. Hold on to the law. It's a good thing from God. The law is good. It was a good gift from the Lord. And they're saying, hold on to it. Yeah, believe in Jesus, all those things. But you also must hold on to the law. But holding on to the law, the works of the flesh, the works of the law that are intrinsically good. Obedience to the law is intrinsically a good thing, but if they held on to that, that would only cause them to miss something greater. Namely, salvation which came through faith in Christ. Now for Abraham, 
holding on to the slave woman Hagar, if he had kept her in his family, that meant holding on to much more. It meant holding on to a plan of redemption that really depended upon himself, upon his efforts and his work and his ability to earn, if you will, his salvation. For us, or for these Galatian Christians, holding on to the law means I'm going to hold on to the idea that I can work and do enough good and be good enough through what I do to earn my salvation. Now, that feels good to do emotionally because I like to be in control. I like to be in control. Like I can work myself and I can prove myself to God and, and it does feel good to have that kind of control. But in truth, it's just slavery. It's spiritual slavery because guess what? You can never be good enough. You're enslaved to one of two things. Despair, because you go, after even a little mistake, you go, oh, it might be a big mistake. I am unworthy. I'm horrible. But then there's the other slavery, which is the pride of like, well, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. I can follow these laws and get it. And you delude yourself to believe. You deceive yourself to believe in that you're actually good enough. It's slavery to hold on to that law. Symbolically, Abraham, when he was casting out Hagar, he had to choose, are you going to live a life of flesh and of works or a life where you are living by faith? He was either going to trust God's Word regardless of what it costs or trust himself and lose everything. And we have the same choice today. We will either try and control our lives so that we can limit our losses and be governed by our emotions and our own intellect, or we're going to surrender complete control to Jesus and find life in Him. Ishmael and Isaac cannot live in the same family. They cannot live in the same house. Faith and works cannot serve as the same foundation for salvation. We cannot live by faith in ourselves and faith in Jesus. We must cast off any and all efforts to save ourselves and surrender our lives to Christ. And what that requires is certainly acknowledging and making use of a good law for a good purpose, which is to reveal our great sin. But that is designed to lead us to God's greater Savior. The question is, how will we know we ever get there? How will we ever know that, that I'm actually believing that and living that? And as I end, I hope it's when we can say, more often than not, what Paul said in his letter to the Philippians. That verse 7, chapter 3, says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have and will suffer loss of all things and count them as garbage. It says a lot worse than that. 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. I've said it before and I'll say it again. In summary, when someone asks you, or when you just think in the quietness of your own heart, man, how's my walk with the Lord What's my faith like with the Lord? When your mind more naturally goes away from what you have done or have not done, and more naturally and automatically and joyfully goes to what Jesus has done, you're walking by faith. You've cast out self-dependence and self-salvation and anything you might earn or prove by holding tightly on to your works and you're fully living by faith. And that might It might result in loss, but the inheritance that Jesus promises is of surpassing value and glory. Let's pray.